There has been study of the ancient world at Oxford for over 900 years, and it is still at the very centre of discovery and innovation in the subject. As the largest faculty of classics in the world, Oxford can offer an unparalleled range of scholarly activity. In this podcast, Professor Oliver Taplin, an authority on classics and the performance of ancient drama, talks about the subject and his research. Shall we begin by asking you what are classics like at Oxford? Extremely lively. There's a lot of people. People might think of classics as something that's done in odd, dusty corners. We have a big faculty and a lot of students and a superb new faculty centre that was just opened last year and a lot goes on in all branches of, of classics. And we have a lot of visitors and a lot of graduates. And what would surprise anyone walking into that building is just how lively everything is, just how active everything is and just how much interaction there is going on. Why study classics? In a way, one can say, well, why study anything that hasn't got direct practical application? One might ask why study classics uh, in the same way as one might ask why study any humanities subject. Classics at Oxford actually has the official title of Literae Humaniores, sort of humane study of letters. If humans are going to be at all aware of their history, of their culture, of their past, then the culture and civilizations of uh, ancient Greece and Rome and of the ancient Mediterranean, of the Mediterranean uh, area between, let's say, 800 BC and 500 AD is going to be absolutely crucial because it's made such a huge impact. It's made a huge impact on Western civilization. After all, the Renaissance was the rediscovery of that civilization and era. But it's also made a huge impact worldwide. And the way that it's adapted in the world today is by no means Western-dominated, by no means a kind of colonial enterprise to get everyone to study the roots of Europe. It has remained extraordinarily fertile in producing new initiatives. So what does a classicist do on an everyday basis? Well, there's a wide range of choice. And because our faculty is so big, and because we have so many students, I guess we've got more choice than any other classics faculty in the world. But most people who study classics here at Oxford uh, learn one or both of the ancient languages, ancient Greek and ancient Latin, to a, to a high level, and study the literature. But the course isn't necessarily dominated by literature, it's dominated by literature for those to whom poetry, to whom historical writing appeals. But there's a, a lot of study of history, in the broadest sense of the word. There's a lot of study of philosophy, and Oxford has a bit of a speciality of not drawing a clear line between ancient philosophy and modern philosophy. Uh, they interact. There's philology and linguistics, the study of languages as such, and there's archaeology. And archaeology, of course, if we're dealing with the whole uh, Greek and Roman world across the span of over a thousand years, of well over a thousand years, there's a lot of archaeology. So in contrast to many modern university degrees, which tend to be quite targeted, classics has remained cross-disciplinary. Yes, I think it has. That's, of course, people do uh, specialise in certain areas, and we can, but that perhaps is more of a postgraduate narrowing than an undergraduate narrowing. We do try to keep a, an interdisciplinary course, and nobody can do the undergraduate course in only one branch of the subject. They have to study at least two branches of the subject. And we do aim for what I might call a width still, I suppose, in a way, this is partly because we believe that uh, we're dealing with a whole civilization or a whole set of civilizations. Partly also because, when you say, well, if one asks, what is the use of classics, one, one use is 
that it makes a wonderful area for people to explore their thoughts, ideas and techniques while they have the luxury of being a student, but it then trains their mind in ways that make them very employable and very valuable to society in an extraordinary range of, of um, activities. I mean, we, as much as any other humanities subject, arguably more than most humanities subjects, send people out into a very wide range of future careers, all the way from IT, uh, which classicists seem to be particularly talented uh, at going into, to journalism, to finance. I've had a recent graduate of mine who's uh, trained in medicine and is glad that he'd had a classical background. I've got one who works in the professional theatre in Paris. These are just recent graduates. So I think the reason why we don't target is because we are trying to produce people who will be of value to the world, to the world of letters, to the world of science, rather than specialists in some tiny area. So classics is far more than just a study of Latin and Greek? Certainly. I mean, in fact, there are some courses uh, where history can and archaeology uh, can be studied without learning either Latin or Greek. But those who do the central classics courses, which is the great majority, learn at least one of those languages, and most of them learn both, but they are a means, not an end. I mean, there may have been a time when the learning of Latin and Greek to a high standard was the, was the end rather than the means. Uh, but that's a time that's now long past. We'd still do put a very considerable emphasis on the languages. We believe that if you're going to study in depth, particularly the literature and particularly the poetry, then you need to study them in the original language. But, as I say, the languages are a means to study in depth rather than an end in itself. Has there been a decline in the number of students who arrive at Oxford already with a grasp of Latin or Greek? There's a decline in the number who are already trained, particularly in, in Greek. I mean, over the last... over the course of the last 40 years, let's say, the number of people who come already well-trained in ancient Greek has perhaps halved. So now at least half learn Greek from scratch when they arrive. Also, you know, there are many schools which don't have Latin and we don't want to exclude them. And so there is an increasing number, still a minority, but an increasing number of people who, who learn Latin from scratch when they arrive. So the teaching of the languages has become something where the university and the universities do a great deal of activity and perhaps less is done than used to be done in schools. We still do get a fair few who are very well trained in the languages at school, but they no longer dominate the undergraduate population. Undergraduates always say that the Greek is more difficult than the Latin. Greek is a more complex, more subtle language than Latin. But neither of them are desperately difficult I am amazed at the dozens of students each year who learn these languages up to a really a remarkably high standard. What works does one read in classics? Well, that depends on what part of classics you're going in for, of course, whether you're going in primarily for literature or philosophy or history. And then, of course, there are all sorts of other areas like ancient geography and grammar and music that can also be studied. For a mainstream undergraduate at Oxford, what they will all read is quite a lot of literature, particularly of epic poetry, because the epic poets are so much the foundation of uh, ancient Greek and Roman literature, and of drama. Also works like Ovid's Metamorphoses, which is a, the basic work of ancient myth, and love poetry, and lyric poetry. So there's a fair amount of literature, particularly poetry, for those who have a, a feeling 
for poetry. But there are others who spend much more time reading the historians, including, for example, Thucydides, who can be claimed to be the first historian in the modern sense of the word of somebody who tries systematically to document events in the light of their explanations and causes, and others specialised in philosophy, and they're going to obviously read Plato and Aristotle. These are figures who remain major in any history of the whole of philosophy down to the present. So there is a range. Personally, I've always specialised in poetry and drama, and Greek poetry and drama. This is the way the things have developed. I've continued to teach Latin. I've tried to keep my Latin from getting rusty, but my professional career has been spent mainly in Greek poetry. So what first interested you in classics and what sustained that interest? Yes, it's um, quite interesting to look back and ask how it happened. I did study both Latin and Greek at school, so I belong, you know, I was at school back in the 60s and um, so in an era that in some ways has now passed and was going to study them at university and I think the absolutely crucial event for me was going to Greece. I went to Greece for four months uh, in between school and university and the whole thing became real for me because of the landscape and because of the places, because of the drama. I went and saw ancient Greek plays at the Great Theatre of Epidaurus. And the subject ceased to be something that was done on paper and became something that could, could be set in a world, a world which was very different from cold grey Britain and which was, I found, uh, totally enthralling. And ever since then, I've gone back to Greece. And what's kept your interest? Well, it would be quite wrong to think of classics as a subject that is finished, that is finite, that all we do is find out more and more about what we already know about. Like any subject that's alive, uh, it changes, it develops. And part of the challenge of being a university teacher and being a university researcher is, of course, to find ways in which uh, to develop the subject. And I've found my, my own areas in which I think I've been something of a, of a, a leader taking people towards new ways of approaching things, and I suppose I've particularly concentrated on three. The main one has been thinking of ancient poetry as performance, both epic poetry and, of course, of, of drama. Thinking of them not just paying lip service to the fact that they were originally performed out loud, but actually thinking what this means in terms of their interpretation and in terms of what they meant to their audiences. I've also been interested in iconography in the way that uh, literature interacts with painting. You know, we have thousands of, I mean, when I say thousands, we've got tens of thousands of ancient vase paintings, and I've studied their interaction with drama. And then the other thing I've become interested in, which is very much a growth area, a growth area of the last 15 years, is what we call reception, which is how has ancient Greek literature been transformed and renewed and appropriated into the literature and drama of modern times. So this isn't just a matter of saying of studying the influence or the, the heritage, and it's not just a matter of saying uh, have they got it right or have they got it wrong. In fact, it's almost the opposite of that. It's asking how is it that it is a stimulated creativity? How is it that it's renewed in our modern world? So those are my three areas, and you can see how all of them, in a sense, have this element of performance of literature not only as something that is read in silent privacy, but that is, is uh, a communal activity. So what are the finest examples of Greek poetry? 
Well, if people ask me which is my favourite Greek play, I tend to answer, well, it's a different one each week. I happen to be reading the one I happen to be studying or translating at that time. There is a remarkable variety in them, and there's a remarkable variety of types of ancient Greek poetry. For me, and for most people who are interested in Greek poetry, the Iliad, the great epic of Achilles and of the death of Hector and of the siege of Troy, is fundamental, as it was for the ancient Greeks. It is extraordinary. It's our earliest work of Greek poetry, and it remains indisputably one of the great works of world literature. So the Iliad is terrifically important and powerful. And so, in its very different ways, the Odyssey, the other great early epic poem, so different, as different as Odysseus is from Achilles, as different from the man who, whose integrity is such that he says he hates anyone who doesn't speak the truth, to Odysseus, who survives precisely because he doesn't speak the truth. So ancient Greek epic is, is rightly regarded, I think, as something that still has a terrific amount to offer and still has terrific bearing on modern poetry. Greek drama, well, you only have to look at the amount of Greek drama that's being put on in theatres, and by no means only theatres from Europe or the European tradition, but theatres all over the world, South America, Japan, India, wherever, to see that these plays are works that count as, uh, as world literature and reward coming back to again and again. But as well as that, I think I'd like to emphasise Greek lyric poetry, poetry like the poetry of Sappho or the poetry of Anacreon. These perhaps have been relatively overshadowed, partly because they tend not to survive in very good state and they tend not to survive in complete state. So an awful lot of trouble has to be put into reconstructing them. But I, I have an idea that that kind of lyric poetry, whether it's love poetry, whether it's poetry of love or of death or of partying or of poetry about ageing or poetry about the natural world, this kind of poetry may, I think, be going to make a, so to speak, a kind of comeback uh, in the near future. And another kind of poetry that I think may be going to make a comeback is ancient comedy particularly the comedy of, of Aristophanes, which is not at all the kind of comedy that we think of if we think of Shakespeare or Moliere or Oscar Wilde. It's much more political satire, it's topical, it's grotesque, and much more like a, well, there was a wonderful puppet show on the television called Spitting Image, which unfortunately no longer exists, but Aristophanes is like that. Um, and I think that Aristophanes has got quite a lot to offer in the, in the years to come. I assume, then, that the comedy and the lyrical poetry can inform us more about ancient Greek culture as well. Yes, I mean, well, that, in a sense, goes along with what I've been saying about performance and about uh, how poetry belongs to a society and how thinking about the poetry as belonging to a society helps to keep it fresh and helps to keep it alive and inspiring uh, today. I guess those two are works that are the product of a certain kind of social interaction. Presumably, your study of the reception mm-hmm. over time looks at how it's been performed over time. Oh, very much so, yes. I mean, what we roughly call reception, some people are saying, oh, reception's a rather tedious word, it makes you think of receptionists. Um, but uh, we, we haven't got a better one, because it's certainly much more than the classical heritage or the classical tradition, because it's much more active than that, and much more interactive than that. Yes, it looks at the whole of the history of reception, not just at a contemporary reception, I myself have specialised perhaps in reception of the, of the last 30 years, but obviously the Renaissance reception of, ancient, uh, of the ancient world 
is huge and fascinating. And then taking it down through the centuries, you'll find each century interacting in different ways, some of them more performatively, some of them more as the printed word. Time and place are enormous variables, and all of them have things of interest to offer, and all of them, in a sense, are part of what it means today. So given the lack of stage directions in the text, I assume that each performance has to improvise somewhat. Yeah, I mean, you have to allow people in the theatre the freedom to do with an ancient Greek text what they would do with, with any other text, whether it was Shakespeare or Chekhov or Brecht or whatever. And as we know, stage directions are not regarded as a kind of uh, sacred part of a text. Indeed, the words are no longer regarded as a sacred part of a, of a, of a work. And it, it's not my role, it's not the role of the specialist to tell theatre people what they can and can't do. But I suppose I have more to say and more to offer to people who do regard the words as important and who do regard the stage action as important. And if they regard the stage action as, as, a, as an important part of the meaning, then they're going to be interested in the built-in stage action. They're not necessarily going to obey it, but they're going to be interested in it. It's going to be part of what goes into their, into their mixing bowl. Have you met with opposition from colleagues over your fairly modern stance? Not a great deal. I mean, um, maybe I'm lucky in my university because it's a big uh, university, pluralist place, and we're a very pluralist faculty. We have a, a lot of different approaches. There's no Oxford approach. There's no standard party line. And that's been very valuable for me because I, I haven't felt I've got to do what a boss tells me or follow a particular tradition. Obviously, one comes across... Uh, debate the whole time. The subject, in fact, would be dead if there were no debate. So all the time there's disagreement. Quite a lot of publications take issue with things that I've said, and I've got no objection to that, because at least it means that people are taking some notice of it. I'd rather, I'd rather people disagree with me than didn't take any notice at all. So disagreement, debate, dialectic, is very much part of a subject that's alive. And you established the archive of performances of Greek and Roman drama. So I did this with my colleague Edith Hall. Um, it's over 12 years now since we started. connects very much with what we've been saying about reception of performance. Nobody had ever tried to document in any kind of systematic way the performances of ancient drama in modern times since the Renaissance, whether in the theatre or opera or film or dance. And we not only set out to document this so that we have a database now of uh, 10,000 or so performances which is on the web but uh, it's very much part of our aim right from the start to interpret as well as to document so this has proved to be quite a, a, a world leader and indeed one can now see uh, studies related to the kind of thing we do in the archive of performances for Greek and Roman drama going on in countries all over the world and it's been great for us to feel that we've been leading a growth area have people been using your archive? Oh, yes, very much, uh, both on the web and as visitors, because we have a very considerable collection of press cuttings, programmes, texts, videos, and so forth. So there's constant evidence. I mean, we get a steady stream of inquiries and, uh, and visitors, and we're always very grateful if people send in new, new material, because it's very, very difficult these days to keep up with everything that's going on. It must be easy to put in the archive details of modern performances, but how do you find information about how it was performed when it was first written? Back in ancient times? Yes. Well, interestingly, even that is a subject in which there's a remarkable amount of new development. Uh, my own 
speciality has been finding out about it from the internal evidence of the text. Because there is external evidence, archaeological, there's still excavations going on of, of theatres, and the discovery of new vase paintings that uh, relate to theatre. But also, there's a remarkable number of ancient inscriptions. The, the Greeks and indeed the Romans went in for recording things on stone and other durable materials. And there's um, still a lot of research going on, both on inscriptions and monuments that have been known for, for a while and for those that have been recently discovered. And more and more, for example, is being done on the economics of the ancient theatre. Subject which I think people would have said, oh, well, that's subject, something we just don't know about. But actually, if you really buckle down to it, there's a remarkable amount that can be known. I'm not a specialist in that myself, but I'm glad to say that I've had some influence on uh, people who are. And the iconography, I assume that means there are vases which have depictions of the scenes. Yes, well, the interesting thing there, and this is a subject that's been occupying me a lot um, in recent years, is for comedy, yes, there are vase paintings that show scenes of theatre. You look at the scene and you say, ah, oh, yes, that's a performance of a comedy on a stage. And they're in costume, and if you know the comedy, then the painting reminds you of some particular moment, no doubt, of particular entertaining moment. It's kind of dinner party entertainment. Uh, with tragedy, the situation is very different. That uh, There are very few pictures of tragedies in performance. They didn't want to see pictures of actors performing tragedy. What they wanted to see was pictures of the stories, of the myths, as they were told in tragedy. So instead of looking at the picture and saying, oh yes, that's a certain tragedy in the theatre. They say, oh yes, that's a certain story, and it's a story as told in a particularly powerful and memorable way in a tragedy. Uh, so there's a very interesting contrast there between uh, the iconography of comedy and the iconography of tragedy. So how can you learn about how tragedies were performed? Well, you're quite right to imply that on the whole the vase paintings are not a huge amount of help there, but they, they do actually give us quite a lot of indication about costume and about stage properties such as thrones, altars, rocky cave mouths and things like that. But on the whole, when it comes to the performance of a particular tragedy as opposed to tragedy in general, one has to turn to the text uh, and ask the text what it, what it reveals about its performance. And there's some external evidence, for example from the comedies of Aristophanes, he sometimes says, you know, I'm I've thought particularly ridiculous the bit where they did something or other and tells you something about the way the play was performed. But it's an area in which we, we don't know nearly as much as we'd like, but the evidence from more than 2,000 years ago is inevitably a bitty. The ancient performances, did they use a lot of props? I think the answer to that is that tragedy did not use a lot of props and comedy did. Tragedy on the whole, to judge from the evidence we've got, and you know, I've spent a lot of time with this, seems to be rather economical with props. Now, either symbols of status or symbols of gender, like a king will always carry a, carry a scepter, or a priestess will always carry the key of the temple, things of that kind, they're either what I might call status objects, or they have a particular significance, a particular meaning in the, in the play. One of the most famous scenes of ancient drama is in Aeschylus Agamemnon, where Clytemnestra persuades her husband to walk on purple cloths, and it's quite an eerie moment uh, when she persuades him and in effect defeats him by getting him to do this rather dodgy, is it blasphemy, is it barbarian, to trample on valuable cloths like this. There the cloth is the creation of the playwright and gains its meaning from the way it's handled within the play.
In comedy, there's a lot of clutter. Comedy, a lot of things to fall over. So it's a very different world. And there's masses of baggage, there's masses of utensils, there's masses of equipment. Quite often, the props are given some kind of comic exaggeration. So I think um, it's interesting about props that they're, they're handled in those very different ways. Is it terribly difficult to look at the text and find these internal directions? Well, I think it's the methodology that's difficult. I mean, you, you can look at the text and the indications. I mean, this is what my very first book was about, and it's now a while ago. The indications of when people come and go, for example. The indications of when people get down on their knees, or when they veil their heads and things like that, are, are fairly clear in the words. But there's always methodological questions about the relationship between what people are saying and what people are doing. But my basic case was that when something is important in the play, then people will talk about it. And it's a method that has been questioned and refined, but basically I think it's accepted as valid. So if someone was approaching classics with no prior knowledge, what would you recommend they read? Well, that's a good one. Firstly, I think they've got to get hold of a good translation. So you've got to try and find out what people recommend. And my advice would be if you're going to read a translation of poetry then you want a translation that is into verse and not a translation that is into prose. But then whether people take on the great epics, which are long, of course, and in the case of the Iliad, great though it is, there's an awful lot of battle and an awful lot of blood, whether they take on the epics or whether they take on the dramas, I suppose if somebody says, well, just give me one work to read, I think I'd put them onto Aeschylus's play Agamemnon or, or onto Euripides's play Medea or onto Sophocles's play Oedipus, I'd put them onto one tragedy and say, try that, see whether it speaks to you.